We wanted to share with you a few things today that maybe we left out or maybe we didn't make clear in our presentation the other day. By the way, Reginald and the skit, you all laughed pretty loud at that, but you know, back where we come from, that's the norm. <laughs> that, that's Tennessee. But seriously, we've got a nice, a nice country back there. You know, I want you to remember something as you go about your, your lifestyle evangelism when you leave this place and are out in the business and professional world, wherever you are. Remember, you're not on your own. You're in partnership with a very, very, very strong big brother. And the Lord is going to do the work. You simply have to be there. You have to be a faithful servant. And you have to do the work of spreading the word. He'll do the work in the hearts. Don't forget that. Because if you, if you get the burden on your back that you've got to convince, that you've got to sell, that you've got to con, that you've got to somehow influence this individual and, and, and get a, a uh, decision out of him, that's, that's going to put a load on you that you don't need, and, and it's not a, not a reasonable load. The Lord will bring the increase. Now, you know, no less a, a giant in the Christian faith than Howard Hendricks. How many of you have heard of Dr. Howard Hendricks? No, no less a, a man than Howard Hendricks. I was having dinner with him one night, and he said to me, he said, you know, Bruce, he said, I envy you business and professional men out there because you've got an audience that I just don't have. And he said, if I'm on an airplane and someone asks me, what do you do? I tell them I'm a teacher. But he said they always persist, and they say, well, where do you teach? And I say, well, in Dallas. And they finally get to, what do you teach? And he says, well, I'm at Dallas Theological Seminary, and whoop, down comes the shade, and the conversation in many cases turned off. So here's a man with a wealth to share, but his audience is very limited. I get on the airplane, and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a surgeon. Oh, what, what kind of a surgeon? And I tell them I'm an eye surgeon, and they say, oh, well, I bet that's interesting. And I've got an audience for the next three or four hours, if it's a cross-country flight, that, that is just hard to find if, if you influence that person uh, or you, you tell that person that you're a full-time uh, Christian worker, often that, that doesn't, uh, that turns them off. So if you get out of this college, go out in the business and professional world, you're going to have a real entree that some of the really big name folks that you've heard about and heard speak may not have. So don't forget that. Now I thought this morning that before Ted says a few words and before we take some questions, I'd like to take you through the anatomy of a decision. And this is a fellow that, that I met first and Ted met later. Let me just tell you how this went. And there are a lot of points in here that I think you can, you can get. This young man, he was in his 40s, bought a restaurant in Chattanooga, a very nice restaurant that we went to on a fairly regular basis. And we went to the restaurant after he had acquired it, and uh, on the first or second occasion, he came to our table to talk to us. And in the course of the conversation, we asked about his children, and he said, well, I've got uh, two children, and I want them to be in the Lutheran school when school uh, starts next year. And we said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, I want them to be in a Christian school. We said, oh, are you a Christian? He said, yes. Now, he had... Uh, a complexion that, that indicated to us that he was probably Middle Eastern, and indeed he was Egyptian. 
And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And I said, you know, you ought to come with me to hear a speaker that's going to be at the mayor's prayer breakfast in about two weeks. I said, you'd probably enjoy it. I thought he was a Christian. Now, I want you to notice there that when we met this man, we were sort of tuned in to ask ourselves, is he or isn't he? And, and what are his felt needs? What, what can we do to sort of move in his life? Well, Natty said he would come. His name was Natty. And he did. And I want you to know that the speaker at that marriage prayer breakfast, they're usually very, very good, and I think that they give great outreach messages. This one did not. And I listened, and all the way through, I thought, oh, Lord, how could you do this? Here, I brought this fellow, and he's not hearing a good outreach message. At least I didn't think it was. You know what he turned and said to me at the end of that? He said, I never heard anything like that in my life before. I could have sat and listened to him for two hours. The message was like 30, 40 minutes. He said, is, is that stuff all real? I said, yeah. He says, well, when I told you I was a Christian, I just meant I wasn't a Muslim. In my country, you're either Christian or Muslim. And he said, also, I was told that you were a very good customer, and I'd have told you whatever I thought you wanted to hear. See? And, and so the, the speaker that I didn't think was very good hit him right where he lived. The Lord was working. Natty was making many decisions. Well, we talked to Natty on a number of occasions after that, invited him to CBMC outreach luncheons, where he heard an attorney from Atlanta, he heard a dentist, heard several people speak, and he never did make a commitment, but he was making those many decisions. And finally, Ted met him, and he accepted Christ uh, with Ted, but somebody else had done a little cultivation, somebody else had done a little sowing, and Ted did the harvesting. Don't feel like you have to do the whole thing. You don't. The Lord has a timetable and a plan that's just far beyond anything we can figure out, and he knows who's going to do the cultivating, who should do the sowing, and who should do the harvesting. So don't, don't try to force it. He has a timetable. And you know, one of the things I think that, that I'd really like to, to stress, don't have the idea that, that you've got to get somebody to clean up his act before he can come to Jesus Christ. I think a great many of us as Christians tend to project that. We tend to make that individual think that he has to clean up everything in his life before he can be as good as he feels he has to be to come to Christ. Don't do that. Avoid that temptation. Bring the man. Jesus will help him clean up his life. But that's something I think as Christians we really have to have to work on. Uh, Ted, have you got some thoughts you want to share? <coughs> no, we're, we're going to Bruce, one, one of the interesting things with uh, this Natty Riyad, Bruce and Sherry were eating at his place regularly partly because it was a very fine restaurant, but partly because they wanted to win him to Christ. And one evening, Bruce and Sherry asked us to go to dinner with him so we could meet him. And often, often evangelism, we've discovered, is a team effort. Bruce has already said that, some plants, some water, God gives the increase. That's 1 Corinthians 3, of course. But he took us out and got us involved in, the, in his life and one day when I guess Bruce was in surgery or something and a CBMC meeting had come up and uh, and I went and picked I went to his restaurant to pick him up and he said let's go in my car he drove a much nicer car than I drove and 
So we went to the CBMC meeting in the restaurant and heard an attorney. And as we drove back, he started to weep. He was trying to drive his car. He was crying. And obviously the Holy Spirit had convicted him. I hadn't really said much to him. I, Edith and I hadn't spent a whole lot of time with him. Bruce and Sherry had spent much more time. And uh, he said, I can't drive any further. He said, I got to park the car. And he just pulled over, stopped the car. We're still in the front seat of his car. And he just blurted out. He said, I want to become a Christian. Will you help me? And I had the joy there of leading him in prayer and seeing him start. He went through first steps in Operation Timothy, not with either of us, but with another person. And today he's managing and running one of Atlanta's largest hotels. He's a general manager. He's still walking with the Lord. He's gotten involved in a, in a local church. There have been some tremendous changes. But all of this took what, Bruce? Maybe a year, year and a half? A long time. And you know, I think the follow-up is so important. Discipleship is every bit as important, I think, in this process as any other step. And when these people do reach a decision, they have very, very little information to work on. They had no way to grow unless you help them. And it's, it's incumbent on you to be willing to spend a year, if need be, maybe more, to take that individual or find someone else who will take that individual through first steps in Timothy and get him grounded so that he can then reproduce and the process can go on. That's what Jesus did. He, he didn't start out trying to convert 50,000 people. He started with a small core. And he knew that multiplication effect would work, and it, it does. But you've got to get the people ready so that they can reproduce. And that's what we, we did in Natty's life. Natty, by the way, had a history of having worked for the Marriott Corporation all over the Middle and Far East opening hotels. He was their top man. When they had a hotel opening in Singapore or, or uh, Jakarta, they would send Natty. He would spend the first three or four months getting all the kinks ironed out. He was a brilliant fellow in hotel management and restaurant <laughs> management. And, uh, had spent all of his life thinking that he was not a Muslim, so therefore he was probably a Christian, and had his life changed in, in, in a year and a half. I think that's a that's an, uh, the anatomy of that of that conversion is one that can really be applied in many ways to many of the cases that you'll face. In Mark 1:17, the Lord Jesus said, "Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men." I want to give you a test. You don't have to write down the answers. I just want you to think through with me the, whether any of these really apply to you. If you were to evaluate yourself, not the person on your right or left, but if you evaluate yourself honestly and frankly, how would you respond to these questions? Which would apply to you? Number one, I don't feel I have the gift of evangelism. Don't answer. Don't hold up your hands. But I'm sure many of you would say, I don't feel I have the gift of evangelism. Let me point out, Billy Graham has the gift of evangelism. But Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy that we are all to do the work of an evangelist. So it has nothing to do, what we're talking about doing has nothing to do with the gift of evangelism. That's one of the traps that is often used. I don't have the gift. Second. I guess I'm not really motivated enough to share my faith. 
How many of you would say that applies to me? I'm not motivated enough. Now, I'm going to deal with some of these, come back to them. Third, I'm afraid my friends might reject me. I once had a fellow tell me that if he talked to a certain person that he would be rejected and the fellow was near death, physical problems. I said, what an insane thing. What you're really saying is you don't care whether or not he goes to hell. Third or fourth, I really don't have that many opportunities during most weeks, and a number of you here have told me that since we arrived here on campus on Monday, that here at school you don't have many opportunities. And I can recognize and understand that, but any time you leave campus, you have to realize that you are brushing shoulders with people that need to hear who Christ is. We'll develop these things more in just a moment. Number five, although I'm a Christian, I seldom experience God's power. So I feel like a hypocrite in talking about the gospel to others. Some of you would check that and say, yeah, that, that's me. Number six, I really don't know what to say. It's so awkward. Number seven, practically speaking, I guess I don't really think about people without Christ as being in serious trouble with God. Let me give you some reasons for not getting involved in evangelism that apply to these statements I've read. One, if you can convince yourself God has a plan B. You know that the scriptures are, yeah, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me, but he must have been confused. And he didn't really mean that, and God has a plan B. There is another way to God. If you can convince yourself of that, and there's no way in your right mind you can, then you don't need to get involved in evangelism. Number two, if you can convince yourself there is no hell. Now, unfortunately, the Lord Jesus spoke about hell nine times in the New Testament, as recorded, for every one time he mentioned heaven. There's a nine-to-one ratio. So if you're going to question one, you better question heaven, not hell. Unless you're going to question the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Third, I can't get involved because I'm too busy. Too busy doing church work. I'm really not interested in doing the work of the church. See, the work of the church is evangelism. And we can get so tangled up in church work singing in the choir, nothing wrong with that, teaching Sunday school, nothing wrong with that, ushering, nothing wrong with that, being a deacon, being an elder, driving a church bus. All that is church work, and there's nothing wrong with any of it. I've done almost all of that at one time or another, except drive the bus. But hear me. Jesus Christ did not die to get you committed to church work. He died to get you involved in the work of the church, which is evangelism. But if you can convince yourself that I'm too busy, I have actually met men that have averaged being at their church, you won't believe this, six nights a week. Six nights a week. 
Sunday night service, Monday night deacons meeting every week, Tuesday night choir rehearsal, Wednesday night prayer meeting every week, Thursday night visiting the sick in the hospital, Friday night is when the building committee meets, Saturday night he studies the Sunday school lesson, and Sunday he's in church. And I asked this one guy that told me, he says, I don't have any time to do evangelism. He says, where am I going to find time? I'm at my church. See, and his pastor would tell you he's the best man in my church. I think if you could interview his kids, by the way, one of his kids was a committed homosexual, was in love and living with another man. And he couldn't understand how, having raised his kids in the church, and he said for 19 years until this boy fell in love with this other man and moved out, he told me he had average being in his church six nights a week and that his kids went with him Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And he said, God failed me. He was blaming God. And I said, you're the one that's to blame. God never called you to do that kind of work, church work. He never called you to that. I've told my pastor I'll do anything in the church that he wants me to do that I can do, but just one thing at a time. I'm not going to sign up for six nights a week. Well, our church doesn't have meetings six nights a week. But those are some reasons not to get involved. Now, in order to get involved, one of those questions was, uh, as a Christian, I seldom experience God's power so that I feel like a hypocrite in talking about the gospel to others. Let me blow that one up a little bit. And we'll take some questions in just a moment. If you claim to be a Christian, there's three things that, and you might want to write these down, because they are critical to your success as a believer. I mean, I'm not talking about reading the Bible, praying, going to church, all that's critical. But there's three things about sin that you've got to come to understand and grab a hold of. Number one, when you receive Jesus Christ, he forgave you of all sin past, present, and future. That in the final analysis is what a Christian is, a man or woman that's had all of their sins, past, present, and future forgiven by God. You've got to understand that number one, that sin, all sin for all time was forgiven, which is not the same as saying when I became a Christian I became perfect. I didn't, I became forgiven, number one. Number two. I've got to learn as a believer to forgive others, to forgive others. A person should never have to ask you for forgiveness. Another Christian or a pagan that does you wrong should never have to ask you for forgiveness. You should already have forgiven them in your heart. And that's a tough thing to do. We want to get even. We don't want to believe the word of God that vengeance is mine. God will repay it. So we've got to learn to forgive others. And the third thing about sin, you've got to learn to forgive yourself. I was talking to a Christian psychiatrist, and I think he's a pretty sound guy. He said, in his opinion, 60%, which is more than half, of course, of the people in hospitals would go home tomorrow if they could learn to forgive themselves all the psychosomatic disorders that crop up out of the guilt that they're carrying for their past, Christians and non-Christians alike, 
They cannot learn to forgive themselves. And the reason we have to forgive ourselves is if God forgave us, you know, it's in the past. I never, I try never to think about the past. We got a great future. People that everyone, almost everyone that suffers from insomnia suffers because they're thinking about the past constantly. And if that's under the blood of Jesus Christ, we can forget it. Now I want to give you three prerequisites and then three, three don'ts. And then we'll take some questions. Three prerequisites, not dealing with sin now, but about the pagan world are number one, men and women today are not gospel hardened, they're gospel ignorant. Gospel ignorant. Bruce and Sherry have lived up on top of Lookout Mountain ever since we've known them. We had a friend, not Bruce, a Christian friend driving down Lookout Mountain here a while ago, a man in our CBMC, and he saw a brand new car going downhill. You can coast to the bottom of the hill, but obviously there's something wrong with the car. The hood was up. A brand new car had 14 miles on it. He had just bought the car, and he was dressed in a business suit, and this fellow businessman didn't know the man, stopped and said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I bought this car yesterday, drove it home, driving it to work today, and it stalled, and I can't start it. On the way down the mountain, it stalled. He said, well, I can tell you what kind it is, I won't, but about a mile and a half beyond the foot of the mountain on that same highway was the dealer. He said, well, jump in the car here, and I'll take you to the dealer. And the guy jumped in the car, and of course he's fuming mad. You would be, too. You buy a new car, and the first morning out of the barn, it quits running. And my friend isn't thinking, and he's humming. And the guy said to him, what have you got to be so happy about? And my friend thinks, oh, this is a good chance to witness. He said, oh, I know the reality of John 3.16 in my life. The guy said, what did you say? He said, I know the reality of John 3.16 in my life. He said, what is that, some kind of code? <laughs> and my friend said, no. John's a book in the Bible. Oh. The guy said, what's the 316? He said, the Bible is divided into chapters and verses. And I was talking about John, the third chapter, the 16th verse. He said, how would you know anything about that? Aren't you a businessman? Yeah. How would you know anything about that? Well, he said, I, I, I read the Bible. And you know what's on page 360? What is that again? He said, chapters, verses. He had no concept of what the man was talking about. And my friend told me that same day, he says, we are living in a lost, lost world. I've seen this kind of thing happen over and over again. I could give you illustration after illustration after illustration of men I've met with in first steps that went to the table of contents to find the book of Genesis in the Bible when we got him a Bible, getting into Operation Timothy. I've met with men over and over that have never heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, never heard of David and Bathsheba, never heard of Judas Iscariot, and I've had several men ask me if Jesus Christ ever really lived. Two of them asked me if he wasn't a character like Alice in Wonderland. 
or like some of the people that Shakespeare wrote about in King Lear or something else. So men and women today are not gospel hardened. Again, I'm talking about the business and professional world. They're gospel ignorant. Second, and I stole this from Francis Schaeffer, everything I tell you I stole from someone else. I never had an original idea. I had one once and it was wrong. So I, I don't try to come up with anything original. But Francis Schaeffer made this incredible statement. He said, the great tragedy in the world today is not that people are lost, it's that they don't know they're lost. It has never dawned on them that they're separated from God. They give the United Way, they help old women across the street, they're supporting a sick aunt. You know, they're doing all kinds of things. They don't know they're lost. And third, I've discovered that men and women need a friend. See, a lot of men I meet have drinking buddies, have business buddies, but they don't have any friends. They don't really have any friends. And when you become a friend of that man, we had hoped to show you a film today and we couldn't work it out. One of the key things in the film is that, well, you may have heard this expression. John Smith trusted Jesus Christ today because yesterday he trusted Ted DeMoss. And there's a lot of truth to that. When a person gets, not that you look to Ted DeMoss or to Bruce Darling for your salvation, but no one knows who they can believe anymore today. So those are three thoughts. There are three prerequisites. I assume when I start talking to a man that he doesn't know anything that he doesn't know anything, and usually I'm right, or when Edith and I meet with a couple. Now, I want to cover three other things, three don'ts. Three don'ts, and I've been guilty of doing all three of these, and these are three no-nos. As you start being burdened for a person, these are three things you should never do. Number one, don't attack. Don't attack anything that person holds as precious. Whatever it might be, you might discover that his grandfather was a Jehovah's Witness or that, that he thinks there's nothing wrong with using marijuana. Or he might think that some president we had was the greatest president in our history and you might think he was the worst one that we've ever had. You just don't attack. You don't attack his personal habits. I actually heard a Christian telling a non-Christian who was smoking a cigarette, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, he, he was lying to begin with. His body wasn't the temple of the Holy Spirit. That guy was a pagan. But he was, what he was doing was attacking his cigarettes. And he didn't even realize what he was doing. And the man did not respond well to that. You know, uh, to attack a, a man that tells me, as men have told me, that the Bible's a book of fairy tales. I had one guy tell me it was written by a bunch of disgruntled Jews. There's no need to attack that opinion. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You don't have to attack a man's position. You don't have to attack his language. When he gets convicted, he'll quit that foolishness when God saves him. 
like Bruce said, he can't clean up his act. He can't clean up his act. Don't attack. Second, don't unload. The first time or two you meet with him, don't tell him everything you know about the Bible, about original sin, about the second coming of Jesus Christ, the fact that you're a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist, and you know, you'll lose him so fast, he won't even know what you're talking about. We have to, as we often say, jettison the jargon, get rid of the, all of that, but worse than, or more than that, don't even get into that with these people. Don't unload everything you know. Give it to them in bite-sized pieces. So the first is don't attack, the second is don't unload, and the third is don't seek closure. Don't seek closure. By that I mean several things. Don't every time you meet with him say, brother, you want to get saved today or wait till tomorrow? That's seeking closure. Don't, when a guy says, as has happened many times with me, we get into first steps and he reads that Jesus was born of a virgin, and he says, now that never happened. Closure would be, well, if you can't accept that, I'm not going to waste my time with you. I've had men tell me, do I have to believe that? My mind will not let me believe that, that Christ was born of a virgin, that a woman had a baby without having sex with some guy. I cannot accept that. Do I have to believe that? You know what my answer is? No. And what I really mean is, no, not at this time. He doesn't have to believe Jesus is coming again. Not now. That has nothing to do with salvation. You said, wait a minute, that's a cardinal doctrine that Jesus was born. Of course it is. But let me point out a few people in the scriptures. The woman at the well, married five times, shacked up with a guy she wasn't married to, she got converted. She didn't know Jesus was born of a virgin. Zacchaeus, I guarantee you, Luke 19, he didn't know Jesus was born of a virgin, yet he got saved. The guy on the cross that repented, he got saved, he didn't know Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, didn't start going down the list and say, well, you know, I was before time began, I was born of a virgin. By Mary, there was no man was invited. He didn't go through all that. We sometimes think we have to unload the whole wheelbarrow and that we have to get closure on everything as it comes along. A man told me when we saw in the Bible that Jesus walked on water, he said, that, that never happened. I said, fine, let's go on. He said, now wait a minute, do you believe that? I said, well, I don't have any trouble with it. He said, how can you believe that? You look intelligent. Now, we've been meeting for several weeks, and I just said, well, it depends on your concept of God. My concept of God is different than your concept of God, but don't worry about it. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to believe it. I've seen many of those men over the months and years come to Christ as we met with them. Bruce was one of them. When Bruce saw some of that stuff as we met for 18 months before he had Christ as Lord, he argued with me about creationism versus evolution, or he tried to. I, I wouldn't argue him. And that was one of the things that frustrated him. Remember, Bruce? Absolutely. He, he kept saying, well, everyone in their right mind believes in evolution. Well, if I had said, well, if you're going to hang to that, I'm wasting my time, forget it. I'm, you go your way, I'll go my way. That you've got to accept the Adam and Eve. We had one guy that we were meeting with. 
asked us at the beginning if we believed the mud pie story. And I said, what is a mud pie story? Bruce was in the room. He says that God made mud pies. He blew on them and two naked people jumped up and started running around. He said, that's the mud pie story. And he wanted to know if we believed it. And I said, well, I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but, but yeah, I guess I would, wouldn't have too much trouble with that. And again, he said, how can you accept that kind of stuff? Everyone knows this world came about through evolution. And again, my answer to that is, well, I guess a little bit, it depends on your concept of God. But you see what I mean by closing? You don't have to get a guy to agree. We had a fellow in Chattanooga that we both know quite well. When he became a Christian, he, started to, he wanted to win people to Christ, and he started taking them through first steps. Remember I told you the other day, covers the Bible as a credible, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the eternal life in Christ. And the very first chapter deals with the Bible as a credible, deals with some uh, prophecy and other And this guy kept saying, I have trouble with that. I have trouble with whoever he was taking through would say, this other Christian fellow, the guy said, well, until you nail that down, I'm not going to meet with you anymore. And he had eight men in a row quit on him. Eight men in a row. Because he was trying to get him to mentally accept something that his mind could not accept until the Holy Spirit would bring them to himself. And he finally told me, he says, this doesn't work. He says, I, he says, I can't. I can't effectively communicate my faith. And as I went through it and found out what he was doing and got him to stop it, when a man tells me that he can't accept something, that it's foolishness, or that I'd, I'm a jerk for believing something like that, if I believe it, just water off my back. Other people have called me jerks. It doesn't change anything. Again, keep in mind, God does it. Now, how about some questions? Uh, tell me some questions. Yeah, Bruce, go ahead. Uh, I, I want you to... Be sure now that you don't go away from here saying that DeMoss and that Darling fella came in here and they don't believe any of the fundamentals of the faith. That's not it. No. We are we are solid fundamentalists, and and we believe I think everything that John MacArthur believes. I have never heard John say anything I didn't agree with fully. What we're saying is that when you're beginning to talk to someone about Christ, First Corinthians two fourteen applies. This individual is, it is foolishness to him. It, it, it's nonsense to him. It was to me. And I had been steeped in a scientific education for years and years and years, and believe me, I believed every bit of it. And when Ted began to tell me these things, I rebelled at every one of them. Later, when the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, my eyes were opened. Now I believe, in, in most cases, the diametric opposite of what I believed before, but that that took a lot of time. And during that year and a half of Ted's patient working with me, I was making many decisions. So what we're saying, don't don't worry about those things. Those things will come later when God opens his eyes. But all you've got to do is be faithful in presenting, presenting, and don't don't be rejected. Now, uh, we have a little... Uh, oh, by the way, I didn't give you your test. Do you remember the definition of successful evangelism? Taking the initiative to help a person move one step closer in the process. Taking the initiative to help a person move one step closer in the process. Don't forget that. That's, that's so key. And I want you all to remember that. Oh, and you know, we were at, at uh, Orlando First Baptist Church recently. 
When you drive out of the parking lot, the big sign says, the mission field begins here. I like that. Because when you walk off this campus, the mission field begins there. It may begin on this campus, but it begins as soon as you leave your room, really. Don't think you've got to go to a foreign country. It's right here. Ted, that, that tent, you want to go through that little scale? I think that's, that's good. We have here a chart that we had hoped to uh, get copies run, and we'll still do that and have them distributed. I'll leave this with Gary or someone that depicts, you can't see it from where you are, but depicts the three roles, God's role, our role, and man's response. And what this simply is trying to demonstrate is that there are very, very few people that are lying in bed at night, tossing and turning, and wondering, should I get saved tonight or wait till tomorrow? In fact, I've never met anyone like that. If there is such a person, I've never met him. There are people, as you see this chart, you read it from the bottom up, there are people that this chart calls a minus 10, that has no, that have ha never had a conscious awareness of a supreme being, and they live in America. <coughs> minus 9 is awareness of the supreme being, but no knowledge of the gospel. Minus 8, an initial awareness of the gospel. Minus 7, a positive attitude towards the messenger. That would be you or me, his friend or her friend. Awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel is minus 6. And then as a person moves up and they get a positive attitude toward the gospel, decision to act, repent in faith, repentance in faith, they become a new creature, and then they start growing in their steps in growth. We'll, we'll try and get copies made, run off here, and distribute them in the next few days, maybe at the next assembly, because as you meet people, what if you've heard any us say anything, Bruce and I, in the time we've been with you, is you have to meet people where they are. You have to meet people, when you're talking to a person that's never had a conscious thought about a supreme being or God, and the world is full of them, there's no need in starting to talk about him and ask him if he wants to accept Jesus because he does not know what you're talking about, if he's a minus 10. Now, if he's a minus 1 or 2, he might well know what you are. But until you find out where he is, there's no need in talking to him because you won't be relating to him. It would be just like me in a, just a few minutes. We're going to be climbing in our airplane and telling it to go to Chattanooga, Tennessee, the latitude and longitude of Chattanooga. And for me to tr put one of you up there in the front cockpit with me and tell you to program that thing, you wouldn't know what I was talking about. You would not. I've had, I've had a pilot in that front seat with me that had 27,000 hours of flying, and he had never seen equipment like that. In 27,000, he's 70-something years of age. And when I told him about it, he says, I can't believe it would work. I'd never, tr I'd never use it. I've been using it for about 15 years. And it'll literally go all the way to Chattanooga, find Chattanooga, find the runway, and automatically descend. We'll be in that plane in about one hour. We hope. Uh, <laughs> on our way eastbound. And now the, the equipment can... But see, you couldn't understand that equipment. I can't understand it. It works off satellites. I have no idea how the thing works. But I've used it for 15, 17 years, and it's always found... I've never landed and found out I was in a different state from where I thought I was going. Tiff, I think it's important, and that, that scale goes from minus 10 to zero, which is conversion, and then beyond with discipleship. Again, don't go away thinking that we're judging people. We're not, we're not judging them. We're simply saying, if you run into a secular man 
he probably will be a minus 10, a minus 9, a minus 8. If you run into a religious man, he may be a minus 4, a minus 3, a minus 2. They're both lost, but one you have to talk to in one language, and another you can talk to a little bit differently, so it helps to know or to guesstimate where they are. It's not making a judgment of their, of their soul. We can't do that. Only the Lord can read that. But we can, we can know better how to talk to that person. And interestingly, a minus seven, which is a positive attitude toward the messenger, precedes a minus four, which is a, mi a positive attitude toward the message. So as that cultivation occurs and the positive relationship grows, the chance of getting the message across is increased. So when you see this, you'll understand, I think, that a little bit better. How about some questions? Who wants to open it up for a question from the floor? About anything we've talked about these two days, you can address it to either one of us, or if you don't, one of us will try and tackle it. Yes. Over here. I didn't hear it. Balance the time between... When you, when you first, I think if you first meet someone, the primary thing is to establish a relationship with that individual, whatever that requires. And if it's a next door neighbor, or if it's a business associate, I think the first thing is establish your credibility, your right to be heard. That's, that's the first thing, because if you don't, you'll never get an opportunity to go a lot further. So, you know, I, I think that's the critical first step on the beachhead is to get the right to be heard. And that will take certain things with certain people and it'll take other things with other people. But By the way, uh, Bruce, on Monday, we were over in, after we left here, we went into Pasadena for dinner that night to a Korean restaurant, and on the way we stopped at Trader Joe's to pick up some dried fruit and some, and a fellow walks up to Bruce with a bottle of champagne and says, say, do you know anything about champagne? And Bruce said a little bit, and he said, well, I need a bottle for a wedding, and it's got to be dry and not too sweet, and do you think this will fit the bill? Now, this is a total stranger. Bruce has never been in Trader Joe's before. I've never been there. And Bruce says, well, whose wedding is it? And he says, it's mine, three weeks from now. And Bruce said, where are you getting married? And he named a Catholic church and said, I was raised Catholic. And about then I walked up, and I heard him say he was that he was raised Catholic and getting married in a Catholic church. And I said, what kind of a Catholic are you? He said, a fallen Catholic. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, I just talked to a Catholic on the telephone. A few minutes ago, before I left Master's College, I had to place a long-distance call, and it was the truth. And I said, this fellow, if he were standing here right now, he's a friend of both of us, would tell you that for years he was a traditional Catholic, now he's a Christian Catholic. And this fellow, how did he say it, Bruce? He said, well, you know, I'd really like to know about that. He said, that, that sounds really interesting. He said, how can I find out more about how to be a Christian Catholic? And I so thought, we got his name and address. We asked if he had a business card. He said, not here, but if you'll wait for me, I'll run out to my car, get your card, bring it back. And so we're going to write him, send him a reason why, send his name to a local CBMC guy to follow him up. 
And I believe God's going to save that guy because he's really looking for answers. And the whole thing did not take five minutes. But see, to start land, jumping on that guy and saying, brother, you better turn or burn. You know, uh, yeah, his, his problem was what kind of champagne to buy. You know, that, that was his felt need, was what kind of champagne am I going to get for this wedding? And I sensed that, and I thought, you know, if this is going anywhere, it's going to have to go through the champagne. And I said, all right, let me see the bottle. And it was four ninety nine. I said, that's going to be sweet. <laughs> and uh, I, I can tell you, I don't know what it is. I've never had any of it. But, and we went from there. And before long, I said, what do you do? He said, I sell uh, medical supplies. Um, I sell the stuff that surgeons wash their hands in. I thought, good heavens. I said, I've used probably, you know, 60 buckets of that stuff. And we had common ground. And common ground is, is, is important. If you can find common ground, you can build on it. And so, you know, we had a little relationship going, a mini relationship, and this guy has taken the first step, maybe hopefully of many. That happened day before yesterday. Day before yesterday. Get them something to read. Get them a copy of The Reason Why. I give them out on airplanes all the time where I just have on maybe on a short flight or maybe on a longer flight. Leave them something to read. Leave them my name and address. I've done that with men all over the world and had letters from them later that they became a Christian. As I pray for them, they became a Christian reading that little booklet. Other questions? That's a good question. Yes, sir. The question is, how do you feel about open-air evangelism? Among business and professional men, it is not very effective, in my opinion. I have no problem with people that can do it. The best people I know of that do it are the open-air campaigners. I don't know if any of you are familiar with them or not. They do a fantastic job. I've been with them in New York on Wall Street. I've been with them in downtown Chicago, downtown Philadelphia. But they're professionals, and they know what they're doing. And I've seen 150 people gather around them, including some business and professional people. But a guy standing on a street corner, screaming at the top of his voice, turn or burn, I, I don't find that to be very effective. Now, maybe it is. I'm not condemning it, but that's not something that I find very comfortable. Yet I know the open-air campaigners, my wife and I have supported their ministry. They do street corner evangelism. Uh, Jack Wurtzen at Word of Life has their, all of the kids that go to Word of Life Institute get training under them in the New Jersey, New York area and they're very, very good at it. I think you have to do it in such a way. I think it can be done properly, and you can reach people for Christ. But it's not something I've had any training in or, that, frankly, that I'm very good at, though I've tried to work with them some. Other, Other questions? questions? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Repeat the question. He, I don't know. He, the question is, in, in, a cultivating, uh, uh, in the cultivating process, have you ever been uh, forced to, uh, to compromise and, uh, for instance, a bar uh, to, to reach someone? I think Paul said it well when he said, I, became, I become all things to all people in order that I may win some for Christ. Uh, you, you must, however, let your conscience be your guide. You cannot do things that you have a problem with in your conscience. Some people have problems with eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. Other people have trouble with something else. You've read that, I'm sure. In our day and age, it's other things. But, but there are many things that you will find taboos in churches in various parts of this country. 
in our part of the country there are taboos that may not apply out here. These are not biblical. These are taboos that the church has structured. But I think you have to, in your conscience, stay in bounds, but I think you have to stretch your comfort zone. You know, Jesus ate with the tax collectors and and the sinners and was was jumped by the Pharisees, uh, what they call him, a, a glutton and a drunkard in Luke chapter 7. Uh, when he went to Zacchaeus' home, he was he was accused of eating with sinners, and and they couldn't understand how he could mix and mingle with these these Samaritans and these tax collectors. And I think that's something you will run into, and you will draw flack from a lot of a lot of areas sometimes. I don't think you can compromise your standards past where your conscience lets you, but I think you must stretch your comfort zone. Well, our time's about up. Let me just add a word to that question. That's a good question and a, a very real case. And then I want to share a verse of Scripture and we'll close it down. I had the joy of introducing a man to Christ one time under a very unusual set of circumstances. And he was solidly converted. It doesn't often happen on the first interview. But his wife was suspecting that he had a mistress and there were his marriage. He had seven kids. His marriage seemed to be crumbling. and. Uh, and anyway, he really came to know Christ, and he wanted to know how he could win his wife to Christ, and I, I can't, he didn't even live where I lived. And I invited him to come to a national convention of Christian businessmen as my guest, he and his wife. And he tricked her. He said, we're going to take five days of vacation, did not tell her where he was going, and came to the CBMC national convention. She was not a Christian, and he was, he hadn't been. And lo and behold, he got there and she found out that it was a religious, quote, religious meeting. And then she went to the meeting the first night. She didn't even know where she was going, just to, to Boston, to a beautiful hotel. And she always thought Boston and all the nice seafood, and, you know, it'd be a nice break away. They flew a thousand miles there. They paid their own plane fare, but they were my, Edith and my guests there. And the next morning, the guy came running up to me. He said, boy, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, my wife's in the bar. This was at 8.30 in the morning, and she said she's going to drink from now till Sunday if I don't take her home. I said, is she an alcoholic? He said, no. He said, I never know she drank, but she is so mad that I didn't tell her what we were coming to that she's going to drink till Sunday. And what do I do? I said, you can't get her out of the bar? He said, no. I said, well, I'll go talk to her in the bar. He said, you want me to go? I said, no. Now, I'm not comfortable talking to women in a bar or anywhere else. Uh, I'd rather my wife be with me, but my wife was in, a, in another meeting, and so I went in the bar and sat on a bar stool there with her, and I was in there about three hours with her, draped over the bar stool, and in that time she drank less than one drink, less than one. The one she had, she still had, and I drank about eight Cokes. I had to keep going to the bathroom. And I was just reasoning with her, well, you know God used that. That was Thursday morning. You know, Saturday night she gave her heart to Christ. She never came to another meeting. She left the bar. She said she didn't like to drink anyway. And frankly, I was concerned about my Christian friends seeing me sitting in the bar with a woman that none of them knew because she had never been to anything like that before. And what Bruce said, your conscience has to be your guide. But I felt responsible for her husband, a brand new Christian of just a few days, tricked his wife into that. He was a president of his own little company, but tricked his wife into doing something that he shouldn't have done what he did. I felt guilty, and so I spent a lot of time in a bar. By the way, there's no one else in the bar 
at 8.30 in the morning in this hotel. Of course, we had rented the whole hotel, and there, was, there were only mostly Christians in the hotel. But today, her, we're st there were st two of our best friends, all seven of their kids, know Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. Five of them came to Christ within seven days of, that, of them going home. Five of the seven kids. So sometimes God's going to lead you in an unusual place. I copied a verse out this morning, and I want to close with this, and then we'll have prayer, and we really have to run. We've got a full work day tomorrow. We're gonna, we've got a three-hour time change. We'd love to visit with you for hours, but maybe the school will invite us back one of these days. Let me quote what I call the saddest verse in the whole Bible. I copied it out this morning. Second Chronicles 21.20. It's about a guy that was president for two four-year terms. His name was Jehoram. Well, actually, he served eight years as king over Israel. And this is the verse. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. What an incredible verse. The guy was king of a nation for eight years and died to no one's sorrow. See, friends, one of these days, three words are going to be spoken about every one of you in here and me, and he died. Two things that we can see with our eyes that last forever, the Word of God and people. And when a king gives his life, or a peasant or a pauper, gives his life to anything but the Word of God and people, when you depart, it won't really matter that you ever live. Don't, as a believer, think you can give your life to anything any more significant than the Word of God and people.